May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. A number of years ago, there was a young man whose life was consumed by desire. And what it was exactly that he desired, he wasn't quite sure, but he knew that there was something missing in his life, something that he wanted, something for which he felt a constant longing, something that left him feeling perpetually unsatisfied. And so like many people, he tried to find a way to satisfy this longing. And he looked in for a a variety of different ways to satisfy it. At first, he sought it through approval. He worked hard, he excelled in school, he earned the praises of his parents and his teachers, but somehow that just wasn't enough. So he turned to friendship. Maybe if he had friends, maybe if he was popular, maybe that would satisfy this longing in his heart. But for some reason that didn't work either. And so we started to think, well, maybe what I really want can't be found in this town that I live in. So he moved to the big city, which was great, because in the big city, there were all kinds of things that he wanted. Beautiful women, influential and intelligent friends, incredible career opportunities. But even that, even everything that was offered in the city, ultimately didn't satisfy this hunger that he felt. The name of that young man was Aurelius Augustinus, although we know him today more simply as St. Augustine. And the reason we know as much as we do about his life and his struggles and his inner turmoil is because he wrote all about it in this book called The Confessions, which is really a pretty remarkable book because it was written over 1,600 years ago. But if you read it today, it is still one of the most relatable things you'll ever read. Now, sure, the setting is different. Augustine lived in North Africa, way back during the time of the Roman Empire. But the the feelings and the experiences that he describes, they're familiar to all of us. We all know what longing feels like. We all experience wants and desires. And we all know what it feels like to finally get the thing that you thought you wanted and somehow still feel unsatisfied. Now, back in 2005, after becoming the youngest quarterback in history to win three Super Bowls, Tom Brady was interviewed by Steve Croft on 60 Minutes. And in the middle of the interview, he got kind of reflective. And he said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and I still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is it. I got my dream, my goal, my life. But me, I think it's gotta be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. Now, I've never achieved anything like the level of success of someone like Tom Brady. And part of me feels like, Tom, really? You're still not happy, but I know what he means. 
I know what it feels like to get that thing that you so badly wanted and then realize there's got to be more than this. And so did Augustine. That's what makes his story so relatable. But the beauty of St. Augustine's story isn't just that he felt the same kind of longings and desire and hunger that we all feel. The beauty of his story is that he did finally discover that one thing that he really, truly wanted. And he tells us about it right in the opening paragraph. To praise you, O God, is the desire of humankind because you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. That's right there. Uh, This is the consistent testimony of scripture. It's not just the opinion of St. Augustine. All throughout scripture, we are told that of all the created beings in the world, humans are the only ones specifically designed to find their ultimate satisfaction in God. And you could see it right in the opening question of the Westminster Catechism, which I had to memorize when I was a little kid. What is the chief end of man? What is the, the final goal and the deepest desire of the human heart? It is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Of course, it's one thing to say that. It's quite another thing to experience it. I mean, what does it really mean to desire God and find satisfaction in him? And how, how can you do that here and now in 2021 in North Texas? I have struggled with these questions. And one of the most helpful resources that I've come across as I've wrestled with them is actually the Psalm that we just read a moment ago. Psalm 63. And much like the confessions, this psalm is a kind of personal testimony of someone who has been restless and has finally found his rest. But even the more than that, the psalm doesn't just testify that there is a soul that has found its satisfaction. This psalm helps us by telling us how, how it is that a person becomes aware of restlessness in the first place and how he finds his rest. And it does all of this through the use of two images, the image of the wilderness and the image of the sanctuary. And first you begin with the image of the wilderness. If you look at this Psalm, Psalm 63, and pretty much any normal English translation of the Bible, you'll notice that right above verse one, there's a superscription. It's a kind of heading that tells you about the author and the context. And the superscription of this psalm tells us that it is a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. And that's exactly how most Jewish and Christian readers have interpreted it. It's a psalm written by David sometime when he was in the Judean wilderness, probably when he was on the run from King Saul. Now, as someone who has never spent any time at all in the wilderness of Judah, I had to look up to see what this was like. And I found an account of it from a modern Jewish rabbi who runs a wilderness survival school in Israel. And here's what he said. What things does a person in the Judean wilderness lack? Well, foremost is water. He also doesn't have enough food. He misses his bed. There isn't enough shade. He feels the sun 
burning his skin and drying him out. There are wild animals roaming around, and if someone brings food into the wilderness, the animals will eagerly snatch it when he's not looking. Now add to all of this the fact that David is being hunted by an angry, murderous king, and you can start to get some sense of how he might have felt when he wrote this psalm. He was hot and thirsty and hungry and dirty and terrified. In the wilderness, you don't just feel want, you feel craving. In the wilderness, you don't just feel desire, you burn with desire. But you know what's remarkable? Is that it's in the midst of this wilderness when all the comfort and the security have been stripped away from him and he's starting to feel desperation. It's in that moment that the true object of his desire is made clear to him. David was thirsty. He was literally dry and parched in his throat. But in that moment, he realized that water, water wasn't really the object that he wanted. What he really wanted wasn't just a drink. That's not what he craved. What he really wanted was the presence and the comfort of his maker. It begins, my soul thirsts, he prays. Thirst for what? My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs after you in a barren and dry land where there is no water. There's a spiritual lesson for us here if we pay attention. Why is it that the wilderness plays such an important role in the biblical story? Have you ever thought about that? It was in the wilderness, after all, that Moses met God at a burning bush. It was in the wilderness that God came to the prophet Elijah to strengthen him and spoke to him in that still small voice. For 40 years, the people of Israel were led around to wander in a wilderness. And right after he came up out of the Jordan River, after being baptized, where did the Holy Spirit lead Jesus? Into the wilderness. The wilderness is often the place where the most significant moments of spiritual growth and spiritual experience take place. And that's not a mere coincidence. The philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, he famously said that purity of heart is to will one thing. But, you know, that's a very hard thing to do when your life is filled with all kinds of good and desirable things. How can you will just one thing when there's so many things to want? But in the wilderness, when all the pleasures and comforts of life have been taken away, then you can begin to discover what is that one thing that you really, truly want. As Charles Spurgeon says, a weary place and a weary heart make the presence of God the more desirable. If there be nothing below and nothing within to cheer, it is a thousand mercies that we may look up and find all we need. This is an important lesson for us today because we live in Plano. We live in a land of plenty 
And we are constantly being bombarded every day by appeals to our desire, things to buy, things to eat, places to travel, movies to stream. And sure, we all know that none of these things are ultimately satisfying. We all know that the bigger house, the, the newer, nicer restaurant, that taking that great vacation, none of those things is really going to satisfy us, satisfy our longing. But that's not the point. The point is that if we can fill our lives with enough small pleasurable things, enough little enjoyments and distractions, then we don't really have to sit and experience hunger and we don't have to question and press to see what it is that we really truly want. Several years ago, there was this team of researchers who were studying what they thought to be a really strange phenomenon. You see, they noticed that between the years 2000 and 2015, there was a, a steady decline in labor hours and in wages for men aged 21 to 30. But for some reason, during that same time, those same young men reported increased levels of happiness. What could explain that? Why would a bunch of underpaid, underemployed young men still feel reasonably happy? You might be surprised at the answer that they arrived at. Video games. No joke. Video games. Because even though video games don't provide any kind of deep or lasting satisfaction, this is what these young men were doing with all their lost labor hours, playing video games. It doesn't provide any kind of deep, lasting satisfaction, but when you play video games, you do get small releases of dopamine, and it makes you feel happy, at least for a little bit of time. And so as long as you're playing, you don't really have to think about those richer joys of life that you're missing out on. I thought a lot about this study over the last couple of years after I read that, because it seems to me like a fitting parable for modern life. How often do you and I fill our lives and fill our days with all kinds of little substitute goods Goods that are not really going to satisfy our hunger, not really what we desire, but make us just happy enough that we don't have to think about it. That's what makes the wilderness so important. That's why, even though we wouldn't wish for it, it's why we should count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. That's why practices like fasting are such an important practice in the Christian life. It's not because we as Christians somehow think that desire and pleasure is a bad thing. It's because we know how easy it is to distract ourselves with lots of little substitute goods that keep us from discovering the one true good, the one thing that it is that we really desire. And that's one of the lessons from this psalm. It's that sometimes what we really need the most is to spend a little time in the wilderness. That's not the only lesson, because the wilderness is not the only place that shapes David's desire. In verse 3, he tells us about another place that teaches him what and how to want. Now, our translation in the prayer book calls this place a holy place. Others use the word sanctuary. It was in the wilderness, you see, that David 
saw through all those distractions of lesser goods, but it is in the sanctuary that he experiences, that he beholds the one thing that he really truly longs for. What was it that he encountered there? Thus, I have looked upon you and your sanctuary to behold your power and your glory. In the sanctuary, in the middle of the gathered worship of the people of God, that is where David encounters the power and the glory of God. Because it is there in the sanctuary that he hears the word of God. It is there in the sanctuary that he hears testimony of the great and mighty deeds that God has done. It is there in the sanctuary that he joins together with the rest of the congregation in responding in praise. It is in the sanctuary that David is reminded of the goodness and the loving kindness of God. That love, he says, that is better than life itself. That's why in Psalm 27, David can say, one thing have I asked of the Lord. One thing have I asked, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. That's why another writer in Psalm 84 can say, Happy are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. David does not come to the sanctuary out of a sense of duty or obligation. He comes because he knows it's the place where he will find what it is that his heart truly wants. And worship, worship is, you might say, a training ground for desire. Worship focuses our longings. It teaches us and trains us what and how to want. The philosopher James K.A. Smith, he puts it this way. He says, worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates our loves. Worship isn't just something we do. It is where God does something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship because, because it is the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. Now, that's one of the reasons that we put so much emphasis on gathered worship here at Christ Church. It's not because we just think that going to church is what good Christians do. It's not just because we come because we really like the music or we enjoy listening to Father Paul preach. It's not even just because we think that it's important to get together as a community and be friends with one another and meet one another's needs. No, the reason that we come to worship is because we know that we need God to retrain our hearts. And we know that one of the primary ways that he does that is by meeting us in word and sacrament every week when we gather together. The problem is not that we desire too strongly. The problem is that our desires are so very often confused and in need of retraining. But that's not something that we can do. Try as I might, I cannot change my heart. That is a work that only God can do. And the wilderness and the sanctuary are the places that he uses to do that. 
And when I think about this, I'm reminded of a collect, of a prayer that we pray every week in the third Sunday of Lent. And here's how it goes. Heavenly Father, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Look with compassion upon the heartfelt desires of your servants and purify our disordered affections that we may behold your eternal glory in the face of Jesus Christ. God has made us for himself and our hearts are and they will remain restless and unsatisfied until they find rest in him. Only in the face of Jesus Christ will we find what it is that we really, really long for. But this isn't something we can do on our own. You and I cannot bring rest to our restless hearts. We cannot purify our own disordered affections. But God can. He did it for David. He did it for Augustine. And he will do it for us. So lift up your hearts. Lift them to the Lord. And let him train you how to love. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.